0: Living so by busy living so by busy living soba with Casey Davidson of Hello Someday. She's in the top hundred percent of hundreds, the top hundred of mental health podcasts out there. And I'm so honored that she's here. And I get to do something that she probably doesn't normally get to do, which is be in the hot seat.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm used to interviewing people. So yeah. This is so fun. I love
0: to hear people's stories, to share everybody's journeys, because I feel like navigating life can be so difficult. So knowing that you aren't the only one is so important. Yeah, for sure. And she's also a life coach and a sobriety coach, aren't you?
1: Yep, absolutely. Yeah. I started coaching full-time. I left corporate Gosh, four and a half years ago. So I've been doing this 24-7 kind of uh, since then, which is great.
0: It's amazing. But before we get into what you're doing now, I love to hear people's backgrounds. And I knew because I was on Casey's podcast that she was from D.C. Because we talked about it a little bit, Have her having to go home for the holidays and stuff like that. And so we got talking about where she was originally from and how she's actually traveled the world. Tell us what that was like having parents as diplomats. It sounds so sexy.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I think it is like a really incredible way to live. I met a lot of interesting people. I also don't think it's really easy on kids um, because we moved every two or three years and not just houses or schools, but countries and continents, which each one was so different. And you felt like you had really no control over your life in a big, in a big way. So, um, but of course it was kind of how I grew up. So I didn't know very different. So my parents, um, my dad joined the foreign service right out of grad school um, and my mom met him and she already wanted to travel the world. She wanted to live in Africa, and this was back in 1969. So they got married, and their first assignment was Portugal, and then they went down to Botswana, which is in Southern Africa, where my sister was born, moved back to D.C., which was where I was born. My sister and I are 18 months apart, and then when I was three years old, we moved to Mozambique in Southern Africa for when I was three to five, um, moved back to the U.S. for a year. Then we went to Paraguay in South America uh, for two years, Zambia in Southern Africa for three years back to the States. And then I went to boarding school like a month after I turned 14. Uh, so I was like, I haven't lived with my parents since I was 13 years old. Wow. Wow.
0: That's a but, lot of it's so yeah. much change. I mean, if, if you think about it, the language must have been hard too, the language.
1: Yeah. yeah, it was. Um it definitely was. I mean, Paraguay is is Spanish, pure Spanish. Um obviously I went to an American school, but a lot of I mean, I learned to speak Spanish um, watching telenovelas. That was how I learned highly, highly inappropriate. Now that I have kids, my, as a seven-year-old, I was watching the, you know, the Spanish and Brazilian telenovelas with our housekeeper who lived with us. Cause my, both my parents worked full-time quite a bit. Um, yeah. And when I went to boarding school, my parents moved to Namibia and Southern Africa to Brazil, and then to Guinea-Bissau in West Africa, the, um and Australia all during those four years. So it was just, it was very, uh, ex- we had great Christmas vacations. We traveled to cool places, but um very much felt like you were on your own and you just had to make it work. I can imagine that
0: being hard because I started drinking at 13. So <laughs> I know at boarding schools, you think that you're like being, your, your kids are being locked up in this place where there's no drugs or alcohol,
1: but is that the case? Well, not for everyone, but for me, I was a very, very good girl in high school that changed in college. So I literally, I think I drank three times in high school, never on campus. I didn't do any drugs. I didn't smoke cigarettes. And that was because I felt like I had to be hyper vigilant to be good. So if I, you know, you got suspended for smoking or drinking, uh, kicked out for drugs, kicked out for drinking your second time, and I literally had nowhere to go, so the government was paying for boarding school and three trips home a year because they were living in a place without an american speaking high school, and they moved so much, thank God, so I had four years in one place but um, if I got suspended, I would have had to go to my very old school grandparents in Ohio. And I always felt like I needed to be adopted by one of my friend's parents for long weekends or to rely on them to help me, you know, go buy ice hockey gear. So I was a good, good girl. And it totally contributed to my people pleasing and always wondering what people thought of me and if they liked me and, you know, all that kind of stuff.
0: That must have been so hard. And where was your sister
1: in the same school as you were? No, well, my sister and I you know had sort of a contentious relationship. I was the younger sister um she you know how you adopt you know this in any family you adopt one persona or another. so my sister was very resentful of my parents uh very contrary um somewhat angry, she had a suicide attempt in eighth grade. And um, was not very happy with me. She found me very, very annoying because I was the peacekeeper. Nothing was ever a problem. I was trying to, every time she was mean to my parents, I tried to go over the top, being nice. And um, so she, we both got into the same boarding school and then I got into a different one. And I actually chose to go to a different boarding school in a different state at 14. So My parents were on different continents. I mean, this is way too much information. Um, They were in Africa and and Brazil. Um, My sister was in Massachusetts. I was in Connecticut, but that was my choice. I didn't want to spend four more years um, sort of also negotiating her moods. Oh my gosh. But that's a lot for somebody who's 14, because I think
0: about it. I mean, now I'm 55 and it's still hard for me to make decisions, but to think at 14 with what you don't really know that much, like we've seen a lot of the world, but you still inside these brains, we're like, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I just know I don't want to go there with her. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Right. And yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my son is 15 now and I, selfishly cannot imagine seeing him three times a year. I mean, he goes backpacking for a week and I like look in his bedroom like a puppy dog. Um, So, you know, I, I love um, being super close to my kids. And I think we always do the opposite of what we had. Um, I never wanted to not work. I've always wanted to work mostly because I was I found um, being home with kids really challenging, but I want to be really close to my kids and go to all their games. And I didn't want them to move a lot as a kid because it was hard on me. So, you know, we just do the opposite. My my mother grew up in Ohio, never left the country and graduated college and just wanted to see the world. And so it's just the opposite, right? Isn't that
0: exciting though? She got to do that. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I mean, nobody yeah. said no to her or she wouldn't at least let anybody say no to her yeah. and she kept going for it. That's amazing. And it's such a great example for you and your sister as a woman, don't you think?
1: Oh yeah, totally. And she, um, both she and my dad did really, really important work. I mean, they did, they did wonderful things all around the world, often in third world countries. And, you know, as, as a, a person that's super impressive. And as a kid, it is really hard to know that you are not the priority. Like their priority was work, then their relationship with each other. And then we were sort of third. Yeah, it's kind of like it
0: was back then in a weird way. It and It was. It was. And nobody really talks about it because now all these people are like, at least parents like to tell us, like, why are you doing so much with your kids? Like, why are you so, why, why do you sign them up for every sport? And why do they need to do a craft every day? When you growing up didn't have any
1: of that, right? You no. Didn't have, no. No. And, you know, I'm a Gen Xer and I, I love Gen Xers. I think um, we're the best, but we are definitely like, you know, there were the jokes during the pandemics, like we were built for the pandemic. We were like, dude, I grew up eating Chef Boyardee <laughs> and watching MTV on my couch, latchkey kid, lots of time alone, you know?
0: I mean, it's so crazy. I mean, I remember being young and they had, you know, they were like, why don't you, somebody today said, can you imagine sitting on the couch, eating a pint of, ba- ba- of Baskin Robbins ice cream? And I was like, yeah, I can. When I was young, I did it all the time. I would sit at home and nobody would say boo. No one was like, that's not good for you. Nobody even knew what was good for us. It was like bologna and cheese was like the staple and and wonder bread. Nobody cared.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were very self-sufficient. Um, yeah. I love that movie reality bites where the parents are like, you're just going to have to figure it out. And she's like, Winona Ryder is talking to basically talking to her uh phone friend who is uh you know psychic to tell her what to do with her life and using her parents' gas card to buy food by pumping other people's gas and I was like, yep, that sounds about right
0: exactly, exactly. I had an Amoco card the one on MacArthur Boulevard in Washington, DC when I was in college. Yeah. Yeah. And in college, and that's like how we met my best friend and I, we would go there and be like, all right, what are we getting
1: to eat? And it was mostly Doritos. So then you went off to college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I went off to college and it was the first time where I felt I could drink without consequences. And I started drinking. I went to a small liberal arts college, Um, that was a huge keg party culture. And I joined the women's rugby team, which is like beyond the keg party culture. It's like a crash course in, you know, binge drinking that, you know, we were doing keg runs and keg stands and, you know, a shot a minute for an hour. And, you know, the goal was to get blackout drunk, like literally the goal you got um, rewarded, for boot and rallying, which basically means throw up and keep drinking. And we used to have to chug beer out of an old cleat if you scored a try in rugby. So um, coming out of boarding school into that culture, I thought it was amazing. I was like, this is great. I can finally turn off my mind. I can finally stop worrying what people think of me. And I felt like the more I drank, the more adventures I would have. Like every anything could happen. And that was awesome. Now, to be fair, most of what happened was me like passing out in the hallway. Um, And I would literally like we'd go on keg runs. And I would come home because we do it during practice. Sometimes like it was like a big surprise. I would come back to my dorm. And I would sleep in the hallway. So my friends wouldn't walk out the door to the party without me. And like, so they'd have to wake me up and bring me like it was it was highly dysfunctional and yet I was like, this is the best.
0: Isn't it so funny?
1: And did I want to ask you this? Does
0: did anybody in your family like have a drinking problem or drink too much? No.
1: No one. no. no one. No one. It was just me. Um, I go to my sister's house, you know, when she had two little toddlers and she was a member of a wine club and she had all these wines with literally an inch of dust on top of them. I could not keep a wine bottle. In my house ever. And my parents, you know, they always hosted a lot of, you know, they were diplomats, there were lots of cocktail parties, there was lots of entertaining. They had wine at dinner every night, but it was a glass like they did not have issues with drinking. Um, I definitely did.
0: Well, it's so funny because you mentioned the the cocktail parties because I was just talking to somebody about how we don't have cocktail parties like we used to have, like all the time. Mm -hmm. Our parents would have these lavish dinner parties and cocktail (laughs) parties. And I remember looking at my mom going, I cannot wait to be a grown up and have a pretty glass and a pretty dress and be happy, right? Because at their parties, they were always happy. Even if they might not have been on the inside, they sure looked like they were happy, didn't they?
1: Oh, yeah. And um you know, I used to go to sleep and, as a kid, just listen to the party and the glasses clinking and um, the, all the conversation and all the laughter. And I, I literally was like, this is the happiest sound in the entire world. Let's take a quick break. Do as I say, not as I do. Are we that generation? Or are we doing and working on ourselves just as much as we work on the technology that we crave artificial intelligence and the concerns I would say were pretty valid but the interesting thing about that is is it valid because that's how we see ourselves are we, are we looking at them but then really seeing us
0: that childhood thing that we remember that yeah. we're like oh my gosh that's when I hit and Mecca right like that's when the happiness and the best time of the world starts so you graduate from college even though you're a party queen
1: <laughs> oh I got like straight A's I was like the drink hard go to the library drink hard again I mean I was still a very good girl and a very people pleaser and Felt like I needed to, you know, I wanted my parents' attention and I got rewarded for getting very, very good grades. And, you know, that was sort of my role in the family to be the one that that didn't need anything and was very grateful. And so I got my first job out of college. I uh, went down to Washington, D.C. I worked at a consulting firm and um, it was a really stressful job for me. Um, it just, you know, I was calling Germany doing competitive intelligence in German in the middle of the night, like first job out of college, so stressful. I was putting on my little suit and going to giant Fortune 500 companies and felt all the imposter syndrome. And then my dad got pancreatic cancer and was told at the time he had six months to live. He ended up having a big operation and, um, You know, he lived another seven years, which is incredible, um, but he was diagnosed very young. And so I think he died at 62. So he must have been diagnosed 55. And my family is very like waspy and, you know, put your head down, get it done. Don't get distracted. So he was told he was six, had six months to live. My mother told me I couldn't come home. Like I made a commitment. I needed to work, um, you know, they were living in Australia at the time. Um, and so I was just miserable. And so I drank right like that. And I couldn't even cook dinner. I had no idea how to cook. I'd gone to boarding school and ate, you know, in the, in the
0: um, you know, dining
1: hall in college. Yeah. And so I would eat like Lucky Charms and have a bottle of red wine and then throw a bile all night and then go to work. And I mean, it was, it was crazy. And it was sort of a joke in my family. Um, My dad, you know, like I said, none of them had drinking problems. My dad was a huge fan of like Caddyshack and uh, you know, all animal house movies and all that stuff. And I wanted, you know, I loved my dad. So, I mean, I remember going to college, my dad, the line from animal house, like he'd be like, Casey, my advice to you is to start drinking heavily. And I was just like, <laughs> Yes, I will do that. And, you know, it was just, I mean, I would even tell my mom, because I was so oblivious, you know, I was on my bathroom floor, sweating, throwing a bile for hours the day before I was flying in New York for a business trip to Amex. And my mom said to me, you know, I think maybe you should reevaluate your relationship with alcohol. And that became a joke for the next 20 years. Like, I would be like, you know, that was the punchline to... <laughs> anything. But um yeah, I finally stopped drinking when I was 40. So um 18 to 40, I was I was a 365 night, you know, days a days a year drinker, unless I was trying to moderate or I was pregnant.
0: That's how I was. I never tried to moderate though. But I
1: didn't I I had (laughs) all the rules.
0: Oh my gosh, I'm not because I'm a horrible rule follower. So I never give myself like, oh, you can't. I I know people would be like, I'm not drinking red wine. I'm not drinking white wine. I'm not drinking beer. I never put that on me. I was just like the I was like, go big or go home. That was me, like blackout. And I went from 13 to 37. Mm. But so tell me about your husband. Where did you meet him on your journey?
1: I met him in our my first job out of college. We were both at this consulting firm. Um We came in with a class of like 30 kids right out of college. It was a really fun company because they hired 20 or 30 kids right out of college every year. So like 75 people in the company were under the age of 25. And we partied together. We started dating. We moved out to Seattle together. I would never have left DC. I don't quit jobs. I like security, but he was like, I'm out of here. So then I hustled got a bunch of job interviews, offers. We moved to Seattle because my best friend from high school was out here. And we, my best friend lived on a floating home with her boyfriend, like very sleepless in Seattle. My husband and I somehow rented a floating home a mile away from them and I would kayak to work. And, you know, it was, it was pretty great. Oh my gosh. But that's a huge move again. It's
0: like, oh my gosh, everywhere you've lived in the world. I mean, can I, I I can see why you would have wanted to stay in DC. Oh,
1: I don't like change. I don't like change. I, my friends are incredibly important to me. I like stability. And so, yeah, he was like, are you coming with me or not? And I was like, all right. And then he wanted to live in San Diego, but my best friend was in Seattle. So I hustled. And, you know, got like four job offers and they were going to move me. And I was like, we're going to Seattle because my best friend was there. And, uh, yeah, we haven't moved again. I mean, we move neighborhoods and stuff, but we've been here, uh, 23 years now.
0: Oh my gosh. That's amazing. And did you guys drink together? Was he your drinking buddy?
1: He was, but um, he still drinks. He's a normie, you know, the uh, yeah. the person who can, I mean, he drinks mostly every night, but I was, it was unspoken that he would drive home. It was unspoken that he was in charge of taking care of me. Um, I was definitely a blackout drinker on the regular. Um, you know, sometimes a bunch of times I was dead weight at the end of the night um i was a ton of fun i just don't remember it all and um but i would also drink a bottle of wine on the couch i would you know put the kids to bed and get back on the computer to work and i would work while drinking um because i was like well if i've got to work i might as well drink although i drank every night so i don't know what i was trying to pretend <laughs> um and i would make the rules so i would you know, I was definitely worried about my drinking. Um, I think it started with, I wanted to lose weight after the kids and whatever, but I did all the, um, you know, I'm going to join running clubs. So I won't drink in the evenings a couple of times a week. I'm going to do 5 30 AM boot camp So I won't drink too much the night before I'll drink white wine. Cause I like red wine better. I'll only drink while I'm out. So not at home. Um, So I couldn't drink too much. And then alternatively, I'll only drink at home, not when I'm out. So I won't drive. I mean, you know, you name it. I tried it. Clearly it did not work. And was that thing that your
0: mom said to you, like, I think you need to reevaluate your relationship with alcohol. Was that always sitting in as much as everybody in the family was making a joke about it? You were probably like, okay, this isn't really a joke.
1: Oh, no. I mean, I probably, you know, I it's no fun to be on the floor throwing a bile, right? Like that was like, yeah, this probably isn't totally normal. Um, and then was just always a huge drinker, lots of gray outs, blackouts, lots of hangovers. Um, and then once my son was born, when he was six months old, I think was the first time I read Drinking a Love Story by Carolyn Knapp, just amazing book. And I wrote myself a letter in a word doc being like, I think I have a problem with alcohol. I have to stop. This is serious. And that was on a Tuesday. Vividly remember on Thursday, coming back to that same word document, coming over the top and being like, just kidding. I was overreacting like to myself, (laughs) trying to justify it. And so that he was six months at the time. I stopped for a year when he was five, you know, went to a therapist that specialized in anxiety and addiction, went to AA for four months, um, went back to drink. Well, I got pregnant. So stopped drinking for a year, went back to drinking after my daughter was born and then stopped two years later uh, with the help of a sober coach with uh, an online sober coaching program and a, Podcast, books, all the other things, therapy. You know. And when was that that you that you?
0: How long has it been so far?
1: It's been uh, seven and a half years, a little bit more. February will be eight years. It's amazing. So
0: I find it so interesting because I got sober, you know, 17 years ago in 2006, there wasn't any other option, right? It was AA. There was no, like, I want to go to sober sis. There were no pod. I started this podcast over six years ago, but I was not. Like that was not an option. So tell me, what did you think about AA and what worked for you and what didn't? I think it's always so interesting to hear because so many people, I want to just put this out there. You know, I know a lot of people have this black and white thinking. That there's only one way to skin a cat. You either go this way or yeah. you go, or you don't get it at all. And I love that there's. I like the color in between. I'm not mm-hmm. wearing color today, but I normally wear a bright color, and I'm all about that color. So I'd love to hear what it was like for you because you did do both things. Yeah. and what it compared, what it was like compared to each other. Well,
1: one. so it's interesting that you said that about being nothing else. So the first time I stopped drinking was almost 11 years ago now. And, uh, there was nothing but AA that I knew of, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it was, that was my only option. So I went to a therapist, um, you know, in theory for anxiety, of course, chose him because he also dealt with addiction. I went in and said, my boss, my husband, my kid, my job, it's so stressful. And by the way, I drink a bottle of wine a night. (laughs) And he was like, let's talk about your drinking. I was like, no, no, let's talk about my boss. (laughs) Um, And he was sober. He had gone through a 12-step program. He very much encouraged me to do the same. I did find through the most circuitous route, an online Facebook group way back in the day um, called the Booze Free Brigade and uh, got on Facebook with them. And it was amazing. I remember posting for the first time from my office, I was a director at a tech company, terrified, and sort of typed in like, after stalking them for like a month, you know, I'm this year's old, I have a son, he's five, he's beautiful, I work in tech, and I drink way too much. And I'm scared. And I don't know what to do. And I mean, the love that came back, I had 28 different women being like, your story is just like, mine. I posted a picture of me and my son. He was five. He was a redhead. He's beautiful. Um, and just the love that came back, I was in tears. And so one of the women in that group, when I was, uh, was in Seattle, four months sober, big into AA, my age, um, I liked her a lot and so she was like I'll take you to an AA meeting. And I was sort of like you know, I I make everything a joke. So I was like, well, bucket list, never thought I'd do this, you know. <laughs> and so I went to the AA meeting. Um it was really nice. I mean, it was a little weird, right? Some of the people were very weird. Like there was an old woman who kept getting up and walking around and she had these crazy glasses on with like Two rifles on each side of the glasses. Like I mean, there were characters, but um, but it was it was really nice to hear people talking about things that I had been feeling, and to realize I wasn't the only one. And it was, it was significantly less scary because I walked in with a friend. Um, and I ended up I was leaving my job, um, so I ended up having about five months off. So I started going to meetings, you know, four or five times a week during the day. Um, my So it didn't like inconvenience my husband or get in the way with my son or whatever. And um, I went, to, I, I think I might've done not a great thing for me in that I ended up going to all women's meetings, which were good, but I went to a lot of big book study meetings and I happen to not be religious at all, like to have a visceral reaction against religion. Um, no judgment, just it's not for me. Um, and the big book read to me quite a bit like the Bible and the way people interpreted it felt like this is scripture and you follow this and we recite this and You know, I got a sponsor and she told me to get on my knees and pray every day that my obsession was lift it and I am like, not religious, it was not my jam. And, you know, I also at the time, you know, they, I would say things and she, she'd be like, that's your ego talking. And I'm like, I don't have an ego. I have imposter syndrome. I have people (laughs) trust me. It is not my ego talking. It might be resentment. It might be, you know, boundaries I need to set. So for me, the people were incredibly nice, but I didn't like saying I was an alcoholic. I could have spent the rest of my life debating whether or not that was true. I didn't like You know, when I genuinely was upset about things, being told that's my alcoholic brain talking, I was like, no, that's just me being a human with human emotions who actually needs solutions. So it was not for me. I like knowing it's there. I really do. Like I knew the whole time I was drinking that I could go back to it. And that was very safe for me. I know today that I could go back to it. Um, The people there were super loving. They were incredibly supportive. And um, I took a lot of wisdom from it that I hold on to today. I mean, you know, all the lines that are so true, like just do the next right thing. And what other people think of you is none of your business. And, you know, all that stuff really, I hold it in my heart to today. But the next time I came back to wanting to stop drinking, I hired a sober coach um we wrote we emailed every day she she lived in paris it was bell from tired of thinking about drinking. and she had a blog um i had some zoom calls with her you know i would block my calendar and go out to my car and talk with her um and just very slowly started building from day 1 to day 16 to day 30 to day 100 um and now it's you know getting getting close to 8 years later
0: it's amazing. It's amazing. I love how you talked about the people in AA and what they look like. Cause I always say it's the cheapest buck for entertainment that you could ever find in the world. It is so, right? I, I love it. I love it because it is so entertaining and it's Yale to jail for sure. You've got everybody from the business suits, yeah. to the person who just stumbled in. And I appreciate the fact that the spirituality thing and the God thing didn't work for you. Cause I think that has, that happens to a lot of people and they fall unfortunately through the cracks because the God thing just doesn't relate. So you want, you do, you get cantankerous
1: and you're like, I just, I don't like this. You have that cognitive dissonance, right? You're like, I'm being told that I need to believe this, but I don't believe this. And That's just, I mean, honestly, like what I I have a bunch, you know, I'm a sober coach. I have a bunch of clients who do coaching plus AA. I have a lot of really good friends in the program who absolutely love it. I've gone to meetings, you know, since I've been sober. But for me, I think you need to find whatever mental structure helps you decide that life is better without alcohol and sustain that in a positive way that works for you. And that one just didn't work for me.
0: I just love
1: that. And that there are options
0: like, you know, that's the best thing today is that there's options. I mean, I feel like the society kind of, kind of treats us like we're all robots. We all think the exact same way. We all to do the same exact thing, or we're not, we're not good because these people, and I'm doing air quotes. If you're listening to this, this boardroom in the world, world is judging you. And I think that, I think it took a lot of courage for you to go to Facebook and be vulnerable and to, and to speak up and say, this is where I am. And then to find that friend and then to keep coming and saying, you know what, I want to break up with booze and how am I going to do it so that it makes me feel okay?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the things I really deeply believe is that if you want to stop drinking, if you're struggling with it, or, you know, it's not working for you and you haven't been able to do it yet, it just means you don't have enough layers of support or the right support. And you should try different things. I definitely have women I've talked to and I'm like, you should add in in-person meetings. And a lot of times that's AA. I've had other women where I'm like, you really should think about inpatient. Like, but for some people, podcasts and books are what they need or coaching with someone across the country. And I think you just keep adding those layers of support until you have enough that you stop and you st- stop seeing drinking as the solution and start seeing it as part of the problem and you know for me it was like anti anxiety meds plus therapy plus online groups plus an online course with online meetings plus coaching um you name it i it was just layers and layers i just think everything that you
0: just said it kind of brings tears to my eyes because as I mentioned, there was no other solution when I got sober, yeah. you know, and to know that there's other moms, other women out there. And especially since COVID it's been so terrible, the drinking that's been going on in the, in our homes yeah. that we never thought was going to happen. I mean, I know way more people that died of addiction than died of COVID during, you know, the pandemic. And having these resources available to say, guess what? This is me. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but Elton John said that the best thing to come out of the pandemic was Zoom. I mean, look at us. I'm sitting in Florida. You're sitting in Seattle. And, you know, here we are. And we're helping people across the, you know, all over the world.
1: Yeah. And online meetings, they really weren't a thing before. And especially for moms, Um, you know, now there's, you know, the luckiest club and sober mom squad. And like you said, sober sis. And I mean, so many, you can find a group that resonates with you. Um, and it also, you can do it from home. I mean One of the things that was difficult when I was going to a 12 step program in Seattle was I would have to leave work early, or I would have to drop my kid at home and then go out for an hour, it was sort of an inconvenience to my husband. When I stopped drinking with my coach, I emailed her. That was our primary, but I, every day, like I was the straight A student who emailed her five days a week for two years. Like I was like, nope, I am done, you know, doing this. But I also had my online groups I could tap into from home at any time. I put my AirPods in and listen to podcasts while I was walking my daughter to sleep. I would listen to sobriety messages when I drove to the gym in the morning. I mean, it really does enable you to fit things into your life in a way that going to a meeting for an hour, you know, maybe they have childcare, maybe they don't. I mean, it's hard.
0: It's really hard. And from this is, again, my opinion. I want to just put that out there. So if I get any haters, I'm just going to say this is my opinion. It's a two hour thing to go to a meeting, at least an hour and a half, because you go to a meeting, it's an hour, you talk to people before the meeting, and then maybe you'll t- you'll you'll bring up something or someone else will bring up something and you end up in the parking lot for another half an hour to an hour to even longer. And yeah. it is a big, it's a big, humongous commitment. And when you're a mom and you have kids, it's really, really difficult to get there. So tell me this, how was your husband and is your husband with this 7 years in and him being a normal again normal yeah. to me is wonder bread
1: but how yes, is he <laughs>
0: yeah i mean
1: how is he dealing with you and your change you know what's interesting i actually interviewed him on my podcast i had a two part interview with him and i was terrified to do it cuz i was like i don't know what he's going to say um he you know we had been together we met at 22 I was always a big drinker. Um, I was also always super responsible, right? It was like this weird combo where I was coming home from work, doing all the things, making sure the coffee was made, putting six alarms on, and then knocking myself unconscious and passing out on the couch. Like that was, that was my MO. Um, And so He, you know, would say to me sometimes, you know, he'd sort of look at me and shake his head when I was opening bottle number two on a Tuesday to have a party on my couch. Like, what are you doing? And I'd be like, I just want one more glass. Like, you know, my love me. Don't judge me. I work really hard. My life is hard. I deserve this. He never told me to stop drinking. In fact, when I went to AA the first time, he thought I was being sort of dramatic, um, he didn't really love it. Um when I stopped the second time, I didn't tell him anything more than I was doing a hundred day no alcohol challenge, partially because I had stopped before and wanted to go back to drinking, and it was, Sort of awkward, you know, after you say you're an alcoholic to like go back to drinking, right? Shockingly, he was totally. What, what's cool that with like?
0: It? Wait a minute. We have to stop there really quick. Wait a minute. What was that like? Because you you started going to AA, you go for four months. I mean, I know it, it's coincidentally you got pregnant with your daughter, yeah. but, but so when you started again, what was well, that you know, like?
1: You did that slow shuffle back. Yes. And I convinced myself and him that it was situational, that like I had a terrible boss that I was just really stressed out. I was better. Now I was happier. Now I was healthier. Now, now not correlating that all of those things were true. Cause I hadn't been drinking for a year. Right. It was just like, now I'm better. And therefore I will be able to drink. And then I was like, I just, am going to have a glass of wine with you on a date night. You know how it goes within a couple, you know, the next week I brought a bottle home cause it was Friday within a couple weeks, it was a bottle every night, like literally the week I stopped drinking the week he suggested to me that I, uh, become a member of my favorite wine winery, the club so that I wouldn't have to pick up a couple bottles of wine a couple times a week. And I was just in my head, like, listen to yourself, like, listen to it. What- But I didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about how I was worried about it because I didn't want to stop. I didn't want him watching me. I was super defensive anytime he'd mention it. He didn't know how much I was drinking. Like I literally um, had two bottles of wine going, right? So I had the bottle with the cork that was, he knew I drank a bottle of wine at night. Somehow that was fine. But then I had a bottle with a screw cap that, I had in the wine rack that I would like pour out at some time. So I could have a little more than a bottle and he wouldn't know. And I was like, Oh dude, if he ever pulls out like, Oh, let me get you some wine. It's like, what the fuck? Why is, you know, like, why is this one, you know, a quarter full? Um, I was like, I'm going to have a hard time explaining that. But so he didn't know. He didn't know. I hired a sober coach. He didn't know I did an online class. I mean, no wonder i got away with drinking he was highly unobservant <laughs> um but he was also you know that was just our lives right we had two kids we both worked he was a varsity baseball coach i quit in february so um he also coached varsity basketball so he was out a lot of nights and a lot of weekends which is also why not why i drank i drank cuz i drank right i drank i would have drank regardless but i was work and kids. And I felt like wine was my only reward and I deserved it. And so, you know, I sort of eased him and myself into it. I said, I'm doing a hundred day challenge. You know, I love wine. You know, this is hard for me. Please, even if I ask you, don't buy it for me. Please don't bring it home when I have a bad day. Cause he would sometimes surprise me cause he knew it made me happy. And I asked him to have no wine in the house at all. To this day, we have not had wine in the house. People bring it for parties and they take it away. But I'm like, I don't drink wine. Why would I have it here? Um, And so, you know, we, during the hundred days, I had all this support in this world outside of him. And then when I got to a hundred days, I mean, he saw immediately pretty close how much better I felt. I started running. I did a 10K for the first time in six years. He said, our house was so much more peaceful. I was less resentful about work and up and down. I was kinder. I was nicer. I met his eyes in the morning instead of being super standoffish and running out the door because I didn't want him to look at me. Um, So he saw all the benefits. And then when I got to 100 days, I said, I think I'm going to go for six months. And he was like, are you kidding me? Because we were going to Italy. And with my mother, with my sister, I was a red wine girl. We'd gone earlier before. And he was like, you're going to go to Italy and not drink. And I was like, yes, of course. I discussed it with my sober coach for months on end beforehand. (laughs) Right. I had a plan. Everyone in my sober group online knew I was going to Italy. They knew everything. He was like, you're not going to drink in Italy. Um, And it was my 41st birthday and I wasn't going to drink. And it wasn't until, so I quit in February. It was our anniversary in September that I told him I had had a sober coach. I mean, isn't that crazy? It's crazy. But it is. But you know what the crazy thing is, is that
0: I think because he doesn't have the problem, right? He's not an addict. addict. So he's like, I don't even understand. I just wanted to bring you a bottle of wine because it makes you happy. They don't even notice. I think normal drinkers, uh, total obsession, how many glasses of wine you've had. That's the funniest part. It's only us as the, as the, whatever we're going to call ourselves, you know, sober people that we are the ones that are like, wow, they had three glasses of wine in five minutes. Oh my my gosh, they only drank half their wine. That's been sitting there this entire night. We're the only ones, So it kind of makes sense. And when you have busy lives, like we mentioned, our parents didn't have these lives like we do, which is like running from here to there to here to there while also both working. You just get, it gets lost in the monotony, right?
1: Yeah. He, and also like, it wasn't his fault. I desperately did not want him to know how worried I was about my drinking and he didn't know how many times I tried to stop and then said, screw it. And I needed support from someone who was not him. Of course, I've been like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to drink. Help me take a break. But I needed someone to be like, oh, my God, I'm going out to dinner with another couple. I am terrified. What do I do? You know, you exactly. you don't do that with your husband. He'd be like, what? Right. Just don't order it. What's the problem? You know? Exactly
0: especially when they want to make you happy I mean that's really all I mean a lot of spouses just want to yeah. make you happy and I hate to say it but making you know shut up be happy let's have sex
1: that's about it yeah. That's oh just, yeah right <laughs> and you're like he, also he did not want me to stop drinking completely like, he didn't he wanted me to not pass out on a Tuesday night but he wanted to go on a date night and have me drink he wanted to have me go on vacation and have me drink i think he would be if i had said cuz i know from the first time i did it i have a problem with alcohol and i'm i'm never going to drink again he would have had a lot of fears about our relationship and our marriage and what it would mean and so by doing for me the incremental thing i was able to ease him in i was able to ease myself in be like okay we still have fun. We still travel. We still go on dates. We still have sex and this part's better. And so he said to me once, he was like, yeah, but you never rip off my shirt anymore. And I was like, oh babe, no offense. I don't remember that. Like I was in a blackout gray out. I, you know, I would wake up in the morning and be like trying to like do the detective work. Did we have sex? So, you know, he misses some parts that I was like, oh honey, sure. (laughs) is awesome. I love that. So what, when did you
0: decide to become a coach yourself and what made you decide to start the podcast?
1: Yeah. So I, um, I, it's, I feel like women go through different things. So my first year was all about just not drinking and it was, I didn't, you know, the whole first year is hard. Right. But I also was adding all these more friends and inspiring friends and you know people I wanted in my life and I was feeling better about myself and I had new interests my second year I just wanted not drinking to be a part of my personality not defining to me so I was like I'm a wife I'm a mom I work at L'Oreal I quit drinking I live in Seattle like it was like that and that was cool for like two years and then when you know, at the end of my, my third year sober, I just realized that I did not care about my job anymore. And I probably hadn't for a long time. Um, my job stressed me out. It was e-commerce. We were constantly trying to hit daily, daily product sales matched last year, increased by 20%. We worked all Thanksgiving weekend. No one could take a break from like October 1st to Christmas. Um, And I was just like, I don't care. And I don't want to do this anymore. Um, And I was going to therapy, which I loved. And my therapist, you know, we spent half our time talking about work and my anxiety about it and what I wanted to do. And I'm such a fan of talking to someone outside of your spouse, even if they are incredible and supportive including about my fears about work because my husband would just want to tell me what to say to my boss or just tell me to quit my job and find a different one. And he also didn't want me to quit my job because however your life set up, you know, I was the primary breadwinner. I made a lot of money. It worked for the kid's schedule. He had too much invested in the life we had set up together Mm -hmm. and I needed someone outside of that, you know, dog in the fight or skin in the game or whatever metaphor you want to use. I needed someone who did not rely on my income or my availability to help me sort my fears out. And so my therapist said, I think you should become a coach. I think you'd be great at it. And I said, oh my God, I was in these groups. I was like, everyone's a sober coach. And she was like, nobody I know. I've never even heard of such a thing. And she said, I have five women. I live in Seattle. I have five women at Microsoft and Amazon. I would refer to you tomorrow if you were certified. She's like, I have so many working women who drink way too much and they need more than a 50 minute session once a week. They need someone who gets it. They need the resources you have. They need the mindset you have. And she's like, I never even heard about this entire universe of support till you did it. And so I decided to go back to coaching school while I was working, you know, amazing. I could barely cope with my life when I was drinking. And yet somehow I found time to go back to coaching school for nine months and start a business while working full-time at L'Oreal with the same two kids, you know? And so, um, I went back to coaching school. All I told my husband was, you know, and my husband and I have a great relationship. Apparently, I don't tell him a lot, but I'm pretty independent. <laughs> so I just told him, I want to see what how this goes. Best case scenario. I'll love it. It'll be my second career. Worst case scenario. You'll take the kids and help me out on nights and weekends. And I'll get great personal development and make some new friends. It turned out I loved it. Turned out I was pretty good at it. Um, and so I started coaching women. Um, life coaching. I did not know I wanted to do sober coaching, started coaching women, you know, basically every woman I knew at work who was done everything right, gotten every promotion, got married, had the house, had the kids and was so unhappy and couldn't figure out why. And then I figured out that the women who had that same profile, but also drank too much were my favorite to coach because you remove the alcohol and like, 60% of your life gets better right away. Mm -hmm. And then also as part of that process, which I know, you know, you have to get really honest about your triggers and your life and your fears and your insecurities and how you take care of yourself in a way that if you're just doing life coaching, you don't, you don't talk about, your fears about your spouse or your struggles with your children, you talk about like, I think I need a new job, you know, or whatever it is. So, and I, I knew how to do it, right? Once you get sober, you know, all the resources, you know, the steps, you know, the fears. So I started doing that and um, left my corporate job. I went full time, you know, four and a half years ago and started my podcast six months after that. And now I'm on you know nowhere close to where you are but I think I'm at episode 190 which is crazy to me and it's been totally fulfilling well Casey it's been such an honor to get to
0: know you better literally to hear your whole story and to know that there's another person out there that's probably just like you but hasn't found a solution and to know that we are, it's not, we're, again, I, I. it makes me, it warms my heart because when I started this, I was sober, not ashamed. When I yeah, first, I love that. I love that yeah. you trademarked that. And yeah, I, I, I traded and then I trademarked busy living sober. But what I, my mission was, is was that I wanted people to know that you could get sober and have a life afterwards and it wasn't yeah. going to have to be your identity.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah, same thing. And I also wanted, you know, when I stopped drinking the first time or when before that, when I was really struggling, I did not know another sober person, not a single person who drank, much less drank like I did, and had stopped and had said that life was better. And I felt like it was like pulling this thread. I found one resource and then I found another and then I found another. And it was so random and convoluted. And I felt like I want people to stop stumbling around in the dark. I want them to have all the tools all at once and like, know the different, I mean, I've had people on my podcast who are in 12 step programs, therapists, addiction experts, I mean, yoga teachers, breathwork. I mean, any modality to help you, whatever helps you wrap your mind around the fact that like I want to try a period of time without alcohol and here are all the tools that will help me do that. Um, I'm pro that, you know?
0: Oh, I am so pro that. All right. Before I let you go, I have one last question because this Uh is going to go out before Thanksgiving. It's actually going to go a week and a day before Thanksgiving. That's next Thursday. Got it. And somebody's listening and they're like, okay, I put this down at, I had a horrible episode. We'll just say they had a, I'm going to make this story up. Okay. I've had a horrible episode on Halloween. I had one too many cocktails. I fell down. I did certain things in front of my kids that I am so ashamed. And the entire school saw me and now I've decided that I'm going to quit. I haven't had a drink since that day. And now here we're going the 23rd is going to be Thanksgiving 23 days in. I've got to go sit with my family. I've got to go sit with all these people. What do you say to that person?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Number one piece of advice, tell people in advance, you're not drinking. That will take you 80% of the way through getting the night through the night alcohol free. But I will also say, you don't have to tell them all the crap. You just have to tell. I mean, I am the biggest fan of I'm doing a hundred day, no alcohol challenge. I'm doing a hundred day, um, health kick where I'm not drinking. And by the way, if I haven't had a drink since, Halloween, I'm on day 23 of my hundred day challenge, right? And I'm sleeping better and I have less anxiety and I have more energy. If you present it in a very positive way, it is hard to argue with that. It's hard to say, oh, come on, just have one. Why are you being so hard on yourself? If someone's like, oh, I stopped drinking and I I'm sleeping like a baby. I don't care if it's true or not. Just say it. You know what I mean? Like You will have less anxiety. You will have more energy. You won't, you'll have more hours in your day. But I usually, like I say, oh, so, you know, text people. So text whoever's coming over, wherever you're going, just be like, can't wait to see you. We'll have the turkey, the sides, this, that, bunch of non-alcoholic beverages. Um, If your spouse drinks, I'm always like, get the alcohol out of the house. And if you can't get it all out, at least get out your drink. Of choice whatever it is and so for me it was the wine I was like Michael have beer by the way I'm not drinking I'll have a ton of non-alcoholic beverages on hand but if you want anything else bring it like that is they know in advance same thing if you go to Thanksgiving tell them in advance you're not drinking but be like don't worry about me I'm gonna bring my non-alcoholic you know, sparkling brute or non-alcoholic beer or just your kombucha or whatever it is, like San Pellegrino, bring your own stuff and tell them in advance.
0: I absolutely love that. Thank you so much for coming on. And I want to tell my listeners, if you want to reach out to Casey, I'm going to have all of her links, how to find her website, how to email her. If you want her to help you along your path, she'd love to help you and the link to her
1: wonderful podcast. Thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving to you. And it's such a pleasure to get to know you. I love meeting other podcasters and other sober women and other coaches. So you hit all the boxes.
0: Oh, and I can't wait to one day meet you in person. I know. Oh my gosh. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. And I will be back next Monday. And until then, remember to keep getting busy living sober. Bye-bye, everyone.